0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. I am one of your lovely hosts, Michelle Bishop, Voter Access and Engagement Manager at NDRN.
1: And I'm Stephanie Flint, one of our public policy analysts at NDRN. And I have not had enough coffee this morning because I managed to spill it all over myself. It's been one of those days,
0: but things are going to get better. Everyone prefers that over Stephanie having too much coffee. (laughs) Except for Stephanie. Stephanie with a lot of coffee is, is a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> Sorry, Raquel. Take it away. Hey,
2: everyone. This is Raquel. I am the Community Relations Specialist at NDRN, and I am super excited about today's episode. This
0: is a big one because it's September. So this is our back to school special. Love it. Who are the guests that we have on tap today?
3: Do I not even get a shout out anymore? I okay. posted this episode. All right. On of the. Interviews. I <laughs> it was Michelle's
0: turn. The level of beef, the level of beef that is that is brewing between me and our phenomenal producer Jack Rosen grows every single month when I do not introduce him. Our producer Jack Rosen, please take it away, introduce yourself, and maybe tell the people what we've got going for the back to school special episode.
3: Hi, this is producer Jack Rosen. Thank you for that lovely intro, Michelle. Um Today, our main guest is Julie Sally Worth. She is a teacher with cerebral palsy, and she spoke to us about her experiences um, navigating the education system, both as someone who is aspiring to become an educator and what it's like for her now as a educator with disabilities and how we could do more to ensure an inclusive environment for both educators and students alike. And Stephanie, do you want to tell the people about our Spotlight story today?
1: Yeah, definitely looking forward to the multiple perspectives that are going to be represented throughout this episode. So today for our Spotlight story, we are super excited to have Melissa and Allison Matthews. Uh, they are a mother-daughter duo. Uh, Melissa has a background as a teacher of the visually impaired or um as some people refer to them as TVIs, and allison is her daughter who also happens to be uh blind or low vision um and super excited to hear about the way that uh her mom uh, you know helps approach uh age-appropriate self-advocacy with, with um, Allison. Allison is, I want to say, I want to say she's around 11 or 12, definitely in the preteen years. Um, So again, super excited to hear about that. And let me tell you, I feel like for me, if I had learned age-appropriate self-advocacy prior to high school and started learning younger, I feel like it would have been, you know, of course, more ingrained. And while, you know, as an adult, um, it's, you know, it's something that, of course, I have, you know, begun to learn, you know, the sooner you start to learn, the more comfortable you get, the more confident you get. And so I'm just, I'm so excited for you guys to hear about that perspective today.
0: If I had learned age appropriate anything in high school, the world would certainly be a better place. So I can't argue that. Why would I say that publicly? <laughs> 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 well, That's a bad idea. Oh, I hope my mom... Reverse, back reverse. Now. Mom, go back to not listening to the podcast. Okay, um, wait, so let's let's jump right into it this month, and I will be over here drafting the public apology that I'm going to have to issue to Jack because I re- refuse to ever acknowledge his contributions to this podcast.
1: Can you sing it or write it in a haiku format?
0: First of all, don't don't threaten <laughs> me with a good time. If you want a one-woman production of a musical of my apology, I'm ready.
1: Let's do it.
0: next episode or (laughs) all right let's get into our first guest this month.
2: okay let's get into it everyone today we are joined by julie sally worth julie thank you for joining us today thank you for having me i'm glad to be here so getting started could you share with us a little bit about yourself
4: yes so my name is Julie Sallyworth and I am an elementary and middle school Spanish teacher. I also teach English as a second language to adult learners. Um, I am in my, if you count All of the years I've been an educator, this is probably year 18, Um, but I've been teaching for seven in a classroom, and um, like I said, I work with elementary and middle school students um, at a Montessori school here in St. Louis, Missouri. I also have cerebral palsy um, and a visual impairment, and I... Just a fun fact about me, I am a classically trained musician. What so instrument do you play? I play piano. Fantastic. I have not played in quite a while. I'm probably a little rusty at this point. Um, but I I play piano and I think.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah.
3: Funny enough, you and I have talked about this before when you joined us a couple years ago for a get out the vote video. But I Mm -hmm. was wondering for those who haven't seen it or uh, don't remember since 2020 was so long ago. Uh, Can you talk to us a bit about some of the barriers that you faced as an educator with a disability?
4: I could talk for a really long time about that. So I knew since I was 15 years old that I wanted to be a Spanish teacher. I absolutely loved my Spanish class in high school and decided when I got to college that I would study it and major in it. And eventually ended up with a degree in Spanish. And so the issue was not that I didn't know what I was doing doing or that I wasn't good at what I wanted to do. The issue, one of many that I had, is that I was told that because I have a physical disability, a noticeable physical disability, that I would not be able to teach. And I attended a traditional four-year university program where I studied Spanish in education. I successfully completed the program made it all the way through. And then when I got to student teaching, which is a requirement in the state of Missouri, first of all, I was placed in a school that was incredibly far away from my house, which is important to the story because I don't drive. I can't drive. That's just its not an option for me. And so transportation right there is already a barrier to me physically being able to get there. But I worked that out, ended up hiring a driver. And then I was essentially told after having worked in this particular classroom for six to seven weeks, I was told if you have your own classroom within a year, I don't think, and and this came from the teacher who was supervising me. She said, I don't think you'll be able to manage it. She said, you have good relationships with students and good rapport with them and they listen to you, but you have horrible organizational skills. You don't know how to plan anything. You look exhausted all the time. And I don't think you'll be able to do this. And quite frankly, those were some very, very crushing words. And I later received a phone call that evening stating that the university had decided to remove me from my student teaching placement. And therefore, I would not complete my degree as I had originally planned. I would not complete student teaching. At least not at that point in time. And I was to come to the university the next morning for a meeting to discuss my options, at which point at said meeting, they offered me a minor in education and told me that that was essentially my option Unless I wanted to stay at the university for another year and redo the whole thing again, to which I said, no, thank you. I don't understand quite what went wrong here. I can't. I mean, there are so many reasons why I can't stay here another year, but I don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> to be quite honest. And so after that happened, first of all, I, I guess I should say it took me a long time to really unravel that. And it took me a lot of talking myself out of thinking that I was a horrible teacher and knowing that I was supposed to be an educator, but I did didn't feel like I was. And I felt like that option had basically been like, ripped away from me. And I eventually did go back to school. And it worked out. But I the message that I want people to take away, and to understand is that that took me 10 years, that took me 10 years to be able to to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try again. And that, you know, these voices are are not going to tell me what I can and can't do.
3: I think that really speaks to one of the big issues here. I mean, we'll get to some of the issues with the bureaucracy and the IEP process in a moment. But the truth of the matter is also that, you know, there are all these barriers to people with disabilities becoming teachers. So we have um, students who need accommodations. There is, you know, that perspective of people with disabilities on the other side of it uh, can be missing because it is hard for people with disabilities to become educators. So I'm wondering how we could support people who want to be teachers With disabilities, what can we do to make the education system on the teaching side more inclusive?
4: So if we think about schools of education and education teacher preparation programs and how can those programs better cater to educators with disabilities? How can schools better cater to educators with disabilities? We need to realize that we are encountering capable, competent people who come from a culture of experience, oppression that has a historical background. Most people never learn about the disability rights movement, from what I've been able to tell. And if we shift our focus from thinking of disability, as this thing, this medical condition that needs to be fixed, cured, taken away, removed. Oh, we'll just remove the barrier and then the person will be able to function just fine. Yes, that might be true, but we also need to realize that disability is a strong part of a person's identity. That instead. who that person is. And it does inform in positive ways. And I would not be the same teacher if I didn't have a disability because I have a different perspective. I don't have an able-bodied person's perspective. I can't. So when my perspective is different, which it is, then the message that I'm able to deliver to my students is also different. It's equally as valid. It's one that they need to hear. It's one that they need to know. And it's one that needs to be enfolded into the fabric of our educational system. What I'm trying to say is that the voices of folks with disabilities need to be part of the fold of the pedagogy that makes up how we think about education. I've always Said When I was in school and I, you know, I said I had was in school for a long time. I have two degrees, three certificates. I was in school and I did not have during my 20 something years there. I did not have one teacher with a physical visible disability. So we tell educators in their teacher preparation programs that as they're working with students and as they're planning curriculum and as they're envisioning their future classrooms, that they need to think about who their students are. They need to think about students of color. They need to think about students from different socioeconomic backgrounds. They need to think about A, B, and C. And they need to make sure that those students, those voices, those faces, those experiences are represented in their classrooms, in their literature, in their lessons, in their work that they plan or take home or what have you. But I said, I don't remember anyone thinking that way for me. I was educated by all able-bodied people. And so I think what needs to happen is we need to reframe how we look at expectations from the educator side. We need to reframe how we look at the expectations for the teacher prep programs. We need to reframe how we look at disability. Is it just a one class and we're done? Or is it some thing that we're going to weave into everything that we think about because we need to make sure that that representation is there.
3: I think that's a great way to put it, Julie, that, you know, it is not enough to just say we support students with disabilities or we support educators with disabilities, but it needs to be putting in the actual work to do that.
2: So, Julie, you have a wealth of experience, and I think uh, it is—it is just beyond all of us to relate to the different perspectives and hats you wear, and the history that you have experienced. So, I wanted to touch back on on something you were discussing earlier, which is the IEP, and I think there's a lot to unpack with the IEP process specifically for this question i would like to know um you know a lot of families parents legal guardians they unfortunately come into these iep meetings um unfortunately with an us versus them kind of uh tone and it really isn't supposed to be that way you know we really want to make sure that these are student centered collaborative discussions where the student is at the center of it and their success is contingent on everybody's creativity and buy-in. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about how each member of the IEP team can work together to achieve the ultimate mutual goal of academic, social, and uh, all the other Attributes of success uh, that a student has in the classroom?
4: I think that, so first of all, I think that communication is key um, when you're working on an IEP team. I think that recognizing your role on that team is also super important. And so one of the things that I want to point out is that parents and legal guardians have a huge seat at the table. Um, And So, does the student. And so many times, you know, I've heard people say, including, you know, teachers that I've spoken with, they'll say, well, you know, it it could be traumatizing to have the student there because they won't understand what we're talking about. They won't know how to respond. They are too young, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to have a meeting about someone, you're going to talk about a 20 page document that has all kinds of things about that person written in it, and they're not allowed to be in the meeting. Is that okay? Would, would you like it if someone did that to you? And so I, I think that for all, first of all, the student can have a role. Even if they're five years old, they can go to the meeting, they can introduce themselves They can present something about themselves that they want that team to know. It could be something that they like, a hobby that they have. It can be something that they recognize is difficult for them that they acknowledge they want to work on. And this can be something that the whole team pulls together on and make sure that that student however old they are, is at the table for their meeting, even if it's just for five minutes. Do they have to be there for the nitty gritty of all the stuff that might go on for two hours? Probably not. But we need to be able to give them the agency to speak up for themselves at a meeting that determines their educational future in large part. That's all about them. And time is of the essence for teachers. There's never enough of it to get the 99.9 million things that need to be done in a day actually done. And I understand that because I don't teach one level. I teach 14 different classes in first through eighth grade. I get it. And if I'm asked to be on an IEP team, I will be on the IEP team and I will make sure that that kid gets their accommodations. That means communicating with the special ed teacher. It means asking questions. Never think that any question is stupid. We have we have a tendency and education schools breed this. We have a tendency to want to be perfect at everything. We think that everything needs to be just so. We think that the lessons need to be just right. The kids need to be engaged one hundred percent of the time. This needs to happen this way. the paper needs to be cut perfectly. Yes. And no, if you don't know something, ask a question. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know how to work with this student and I need guidance and I need support and I have ideas, but I need to know if they are feasible. Don't be afraid To say you don't know. I think that if a team of know-it-alls comes together and everybody comes to the table as like an expert, like I know this and you know this, but you don't know that. We are all at this table to serve the interest of the child. We are at this table to collaborate. We are not at this table to get into a battle about services and supports and ideas about how to make those happen. Because truth be told, the services and supports and all of that, to be quite frank, are going to go away at some point in the child's life. And the child may not remember that, but what they might remember is the sense that they got when they felt like they were not included in those meetings. Or the traumatized feeling that they felt when they realized that this whole meeting was going on about things that they didn't even know about because they weren't invited. And so when everyone comes to the table and there's that us versus them, the first thing we need to do is establish who are we there for. We're there
2: for this child. So I was hoping to wrap us up. If you could give us one takeaway, um, what students, families and educators can do to more strongly advocate on a systemic level? What what advice do you have? I think the most important
4: thing that you can do is choose your issue wisely, um, know that you're not going to solve the whole thing overnight because education is a broken system. Um, So choose your issue wisely and determine who is with you in that thing. Who feels the same way you do? Who can you talk to about this? Who is having the same problem? Who sees it the same way you do or who can offer you a perspective that might complement yours? And talk to people, form a group, get with each other to figure out how to, for lack of better words, solve the system. Because you're not going to do it alone. And to go back to the question about the IEP and the us versus them mentality, we often come to those meetings feeling like we are fighting a battle all by ourselves and we're not. There's always someone somewhere who probably has the same issue or feels the same way and might be afraid to say that. And so if you can find, this is the piece of advice that I would give, if you can find that person or group of people and get with them, talk to them, get to know them, and strategize around your issue. Learn about it. Learn about its history. Learn about who did what and where. how how far has it grown? How far has it come from where it is now? And strategize and make a plan for how to solve it, but recognize that you're not going to do that by yourself. And it might be a really long process and that we have to do it in collaboration with others. Small victories count. Choose your battles wisely. And don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I don't get it. And this is really frustrating. No one is a warrior all by themselves. In the disability community, we are taught that you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have to figure it out. You have to be independent. You have to do it all, whatever, by yourself, right? Okay. No, you don't. I did not get myself to work this morning. I got in a car with someone who drove that car to work. So independence is really an interdependent thing. We all work together, whether we're solving the problem of how to get to work or whether we're solving the problem of bias and test scores. And so if if you as an individual can figure out what is that one thing in this broken system that you care strongly enough about to fix, get with your people, get with your community and figure out who they are and then target who is the person who can help you get what it is that you want to get done and realize it might take a while and keep going and say, well, that didn't work. But what else can we do? Well, that didn't work. What else can we do in the same way that when a child doesn't understand something the first time, if you are a good educator, you don't just walk away from that child and say, well, oh, well, you didn't get it. So therefore, I'm done teaching you. You work with what you have. And sometimes that means that you build a plan to start. Start over, or you build a plan with more people or more resources, but you never or try to never think that you are in this broken system all by yourself, groping at straws, trying to figure out which way is up, because I guarantee that there is someone there who knows something that you may not know who can piece together along with your knowledge, the information that's missing. So always find your people, focus on your whatever your goal is, define it, and then figure out who can get you where it is that you want to go on that educational trajectory. Who can get you there? What is it going to take?
3: I think that's so true, Julie, that at the end of the day, we need, you know, parent educators, administrators, And of course, the students to come together for what's in the best interest of students with disabilities. It shouldn't be, you know, ideally it shouldn't be two sides fighting it out. It it should be all of them working together towards the ultimate goal of making sure students with disabilities receive the education they are entitled to. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was great getting to reconnect with you. And um, I, I think you shared a great perspective on what it's like, you know, both as someone who's been a student with a disability and now someone who's an educator with a disability and is fighting for their students. So it was great to have you on and thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you again for having me.
3: All right. So today on the podcast, we have on Melissa and Allie Matthews. Um, Allie is a student who has been advocating for herself in the IEP process, and Melissa is her mother, um, and we're going to talk to them about self-advocacy and how students can stand up for themselves and get the accommodations they are entitled to. Thank you for joining us today.
5: Thank you for having us.
3: All right, so our first question, um, Melissa, could you tell us a bit more about you and Allie's journey, um, particularly as it pertains to self-advocacy? See. Mm-hmm.
5: Absolutely. Um, Allie has oculopotaneous albinism, and we have been advocating, uh, even when she was in early intervention, we did not have a teacher for visually impaired who supported us. And I was constantly asking that question, whether it was the ability, could she physically do that or not do that, or could she see it or not see what they were asking her to do. So even at a very young age, um, just asking a lot of questions and even beginning to model some of that for her. So she's 11 now and we continue to navigate advocating, not just in schools, but outside of school
2: settings. So Can you tell us a story when you had to advocate for yourself and how you went about doing that?
6: Uh, sure. So uh, one of the first times I had to advocate was in preschool when one of the teachers was sharing a book and reading it out loud. And I couldn't see the pages or the pictures. So I had to ask to move up and see them. And the teacher said yes. So I was able to now see the book, see the words, and see the
2: pictures. Thank you so much. Uh, so my next question is for the both of you. I was wondering if you could talk to us about what educators can do um, to be more open and encouraging um, uh, about self-advocacy from both a parent perspective and a student perspective?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. I think as a parent, it's very important for you to be able to share successes and struggles that your child is having outside of the classroom and really looking at your child as a whole being honest um, at that IEP table and as someone who also, as a parent, but also as an educator, trying to really understand the impact of education and access to education, and especially with all the technology being open. And again, what are they doing outside of the classroom? And as educators sitting in the IEP table, really listening to parents and understanding what that child is like outside of the school, because, you know, Outside classroom is a lot of times just as important as inside the classrooms, understanding how they're accessing their education or their social life or curricular activities, as well as just How are they growing and developing as kids? Um, So I would encourage not only parents, but educators all sitting at the IEP table, really looking at from the time the child is awake to the time the child goes to sleep, what occurs during the day, and take all of that.
3: So, you know, I've been through the IEP process myself when I was a kid, and I know it can be um, hard to advocate for yourself. Uh, Do you have any advice to other kids and students about how to advocate for them? themselves and the uh accommodations they need. Oh
6: uh, yeah, I actually do have when you're talking to you're about what sure you say what you need to say and not just like because sometimes you can like get super nervous if the teacher is projecting up on a TV screen and you can't see it. Sometimes people can get super nervous when they're asking. And just the thing is, you have to really come across straight and just say what you need. And also having a plan if that teacher or parent says no, because sometimes I ask for things and people say no. So I have to make sure I have a plan for my mom to figure out or me to figure out. And when this does happen, when a teacher says no, I usually go home and tell my mom. She emails the school and we get it solved. Or I might just come to the teacher and say, hey, I need this and this, and they might just fix it then and there. And also, when you're talking to a teacher, make sure you get your point across, because sometimes that can be nerve-wracking, and that happens to me too. But when that does happen, you just have to get your point across, get it fixed, and then you're good to go.
3: I think that's such good advice. Never... never take no for an answer when advocating for your right. Um, Melissa and Ali, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your perspective. I think it's really valuable for Uh, teachers, students, and parents alike to hear about just how important self-advocacy is. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. It was great having you on.
0: You're welcome. Well, thank you to all of our guests, and it is September, so Stephanie, I'm guessing you have a themed back to school joke for us. A
1: themed back to school joke for everyone. It's actually kind of like a triple decker joke
0: why are all your jokes so long but go on
1: but i okay i couldn't help it for this one like i literally laughed for half an hour because it's so funny okay oh
0: no all right (laughs) so So,
1: what is a cave student's favorite class a what
0: student a cave student a cave a cave
1: a cave student? like a
0: cave like c-a-v-e <laughs> like someone who lives in a cave yes. so, jack do you know a lot about I, cave people
3: we i haven't any met answers. any but
0: we can i haven't either but we can come up with an answer to this okay a cave person's favorite class
3: uh-huh. <laughs> viewers uh michelle do you want to just explain what yeah. happened what
0: <laughs> Nala jumped on me. Nala, the service dog, jumped on me. I think Nala doesn't like it when I insult your jokes. Oh um, yeah, she doesn't. Very joke protective. <laughs> anyway, all right, we don't we don't have an answer. We got nothing. Gem class. Get it? Like like gem like
1: like G-E-M. G E M J? Is it? Yeah, G E M.
3: Because they're in a cave, so maybe there's, so there's gems gem here because
1: they like form in rock right oh um so speaking of which um did y'all know that like the kids now apparently have walkout songs like instead of first day of school photos they now do like walkout songs or whatever
0: i respect it
1: yeah so what do you think this uh, uh cave students favorite uh walkout oh no band? this is
0: going <laughs> into another joke <laughs> i of course i wasn't ready for this
3: <laughs> okay music? cave student is it wait the, i think i got it the band. is it
0: the band remember the band the rolling stones Oh, Oh, I hate it when I know the answer to these. Oh, what's
1: happening? I need to go and watch some Schoolhouse
0: Rock. Wow. All right. right. (laughs) She's doing a victory dance, y'all. It's as always, you can reach us at podcast at ndrn.org. Jack, how can they follow us on social media?
3: You can follow us on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram at NDRN Advocates. We're also uh, just National Disability Rights Network on LinkedIn. All right. Until next time, folks. Isn't
1: it X now? We're not doing that.
3: (laughs) Until, Until next time.